0: Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. everybody, and welcome to today's show. I'm Liz, as usual, joining you from Central Virginia in the ancestral lands of the Monacan people. And I am really excited to bring you this conversation with my guest today, who I have to be honest, she's been on my uh, wish list since I started the show. But first, I want to give you a quick word of thanks to everybody who joined us for our Fall Harvest Revelry event on September 25th. It was so much fun to celebrate with you online, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to meet up in similar gatherings in the future. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I also want to encourage you, if you are really interested in the subject of the Sacred Feminine and you happen to be on Facebook, to come and join me and thousands of others from around the world in the Home to Her group, where we are actively exploring this wisdom every day. And if you want to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of the podcasts and anything else exciting that I might have to share, you can sign up for my newsletter on my website. Home to hercom which goes out every new and full moon. And with that, let's dive in. So, as I can certainly attest to personally, the midlife period can be a time of profound change. I was 38, for example, when I first became aware of any sacred feminine force at all, and 40 when my life officially kind of came undone because of her. And in the end, all that upheaval has been a tremendous blessing. But moving through these changes also brought a lot of challenges and a lot of lessons. Well, my guest today knows a thing or two about this as well. And she's written a beautiful book exploring the gifts offered to us when we decide to reexamine our lives and what we really want. Molly Reamer is the author of the new book, Walking with Persephone. A Midlife Journey of Descent and Renewal, published by Womancraft Publishing. She is also a priestess facilitating women's circles, seasonal rituals, and family ceremonies, and along with her husband Mark, is the creator of the popular story goddesses offered by Bridget's Grove. In addition to her most recent book, Molly is the author of eight other titles, including Whole and Holy, Woman Runes, and The Goddess Devotional she is the creator of the devotional experience hashtag 30 days of goddess and she loves savoring small magic and everyday enchantment which i am certain we're going to talk about and she is joining us today from her home in central missouri molly thank you so much for being here
1: thank you so much for having me it's an honor to be here on your podcast and uh yeah sharing space with you today
0: yes and well i was you know, I said at the beginning, you, I, I've known about your work through Bridges, uh, Bridges Grow for years now. I, I once upon a time taught yoga classes, and one of my students gave me one of the wonderful little goddesses that y- you make, and she's currently gracing my kitchen. So, um, oh, how wonderful. I know. I know she looks out for us. Um, but <laughs> I, so when I started the podcast, you know, I, I often have this running list of people that I'd love to talk to, and, and you've been on it kind of since the beginning. So I'm pretty excited that you're here. <laughs>
1: well great that makes me happy and i know i have encountered a variety of people that i follow or have read books by etc who have been guests on your podcast as well so it's nice to be uh, showing up here now
0: myself <laughs> after seeing, <laughs> seeing you around in the world for a, for quite a while i love it well you know the i usually like to start with my guest um, to get a little bit of, of a sense of your spiritual background and So I think that'd be a good place for us to start today. I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about that and what kind of spiritual or religious experiences you were exposed to as a child. Okay, Um, yeah, that
1: is a interesting question because (laughs) I would consider myself to have been raised in what I would call kind of an A religious home, like not um, definitely not religious in a traditional type of uh, Judeo-Christian type of sense. Uh, not totally devoid of spiritual experience, but pretty, pretty a religious, like kind of new religiously neutral, if that makes sense. <laughs> and so it is funny to have had, to have my kind of dominance uh, experience or offering be in this realm of spirituality, given that that was not part of my childhood experience and I would even say that I would be kind of perhaps raised as you know like a third generation non-religious person in that you know my parents did not attend a church my grandparents did not attend a church and my great-grandparents did not attend a church and so kind of distant from contemporary religious experience and uh that So that, uh, but not, like I said, not devoid of, of spiritual connection. My mom uh, had a tendency to have friends who are kind of in the alternative, alternative world, so to speak, and, you know, healers and, and, um, you know, wise women and all kind of alternative practitioners of a variety of sorts. And so, when I was a child, you know, they had their her group of friends they had a women's singing circle, and where they sang chants that we still sing today. You know, more than 30 years later, we still sing those same chants that the women in her circle would sing. Uh, they had mother blessing ceremonies for one another. They had coming of age rituals for their daughters. Some of them had a full moon circle that kind of thing. And so, so it's not like I wasn't exposed to some spiritual experiences in childhood, but it wasn't a primary component of how I spent my time. And indeed, I had, um, I was homeschooled as a kid, which is much more common now than it is, uh, than it was then, because I'm 42 now. And so I was homeschooled from, you know, birth until I started college. My first day in an actual classroom was my first day of college. That was the first time I'd set foot in a classroom with uh, other students and, you know, desks and a teacher. And uh, so at that time in the 80s, in nineties, the primary homeschooling community was fundamentalist Christian. Mm -hmm. And so most of my peers were very religious, sometimes to the extent of, you know, girls having to wear long sleeves and having to have their heads covered. And, um, and so I was exposed to ideas like, um, you know, women should be submissive, submissive to men and girls shouldn't wear pants and, things like that, um, because that was my peer group as a kid. And so I felt like I developed sort of a knee-jerk, almost, you know, religion is, that was the flavor of religion that I was exposed to, was a very uh, rigid type of expression, and a very rigid type of expression that also in my adolescent eyes was very dismissive of women and very demeaning even to women like I remember being at the bowling alley you know we were doing homeschool bowling I was like 13 and one of the boys who was bowling his mom asked him to do something he said you can't tell me what to do you're only a woman like literally like in front of everybody at the bowling alley to his mom and so this shaped that shaped my worldview but from the outside uh, so I know lots of other people who are kind of you know, in a way, like almost like scarred by religious experiences of their past or their childhoods. For me, this was like a witnessing thing, an external perspective of like, "Hmm, this does not sit well with me. And in fact, is not something that, you know, that I that's not something that, that's, that's uh, floating my boat, so to speak. And uh, so at the time, I was, you know, bold enough to be like, well, yeah, I, would, I would say things and I would speak up and I would say, well, you know, I think women are just as equal or, you know, that kind of thing. And they would, sometimes my peers would say things to me like, what are you, some kind of feminist? <laughs> and I would say, yes, actually, that sounds good to me. <laughs> So, um, so that, that, that is a, there's some roots there. I even, I even ran into one of those friends quite a, a couple of years later at a, um, in college and, uh, and she thanked me. We were on the stairs together and she, she was older and she had someone I'd lost contact with. And she said like, thanks for having spoken up back then because I didn't know like what I could do. And she went on to become a lawyer and I felt like it was you know, like sometimes, even when you're 13, you can speak up and make a difference instead of just sitting there and saying, like, "Oh, okay, like, <laughs> I guess women aren't any good <laughs> wow. to get approval or whatever." So,
0: yeah, well, <laughs> it's so interesting, and I, you know, as I was thinking that, um, you know, maybe. Well, because, you know, my next question is going to be, well, then how in the heck did the goddess get into your world? And did you get into this world of sacred feminine? So I definitely want to go there. But I was just thinking how, perhaps, and you could confirm or deny this, but perhaps it's a blessing of sorts that you didn't have um, all this... that you grew up in a non-religious household and a multi-generational, you know, or you had many generations where, that were not religious because you didn't have all that baggage hanging over you yeah. to, to tell you, how dare you uh, think about things mm-hmm. such as the goddess or the divine feminine? hmm Yes, and that's
1: the thing. And I I don't want to like minimize the influence of like my mom's background with her friends and things like that, because I did have imagery around me, you know, of women celebrating women. Mm -hmm. And you know, I remember, I remember her uh, husband, her one of her friends' husbands, bringing a rock to them at a ceremony, and because he thought it looked like it had breasts, he thought the rock looked like it had breasts, like a woman's head, and he'd given, he brought it and gave it to the women as like a gift, you know. Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of things, uh, you know, those that has an impact on you too, when you're 12 and you see some, a man coming to his wife with this cool goddess rock that he found in the river to present it to her, you know, those things soak in as well. So while it wasn't like a daily part of my life at home and we didn't celebrate, you know, any alternative religious holidays or have much of a, um, you know, much of a religious type of atmosphere. I was still exposed to a different. Fl- I, ha- I was exposed to both flavors: the uh, the river rock, the river rock with breasts, as well <laughs> as the uh, "you can't tell me what to do, you're only a woman" type of atmosphere.
0: So that makes sense then. So maybe that uh, and yeah, that makes sense then. So, but so then tell me how how did the because um, you know, one thing that really struck me when I was reading your book is it it sounds like you went to college. Were you young when you started college? You were pretty young, weren't you? Yes, I was. I actually finished. So we were. We did like uh, essentially.
1: Again, like I said, this was like in the eighties and early nineties. So it is uh, things have evolved and changed in the homeschooling world since that time. But in that time, we were more what you would call what we at the time called kind of more unschoolers. Now, unschooling has become uh, kind of more of a philosophy of its own that goes a little bit, um, I can't think of the right word exactly, but is a little bit more developed, Mm -hmm. ironically, (laughs) than it was then. So when we called it unschooling, we were really speaking more of not using a curriculum and being very like self-led, self-directed. And uh, so unschooling has taken on some different, different um, characterizations and components now at, than at the time when we were doing it. But I started a high school curriculum, so I, we didn't do any curriculum until I was 14, and then we decided to do a high school curriculum. My parents said, "Like, do you want to go to high school, or do you want to do like, do you want to start doing some curriculum now because basically, <laughs> it's time to do something else besides just reading and playing with dolls and you know running in the woods, which is pretty much what I spent most of my time doing." Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, I picked the high school the the um, high school curriculum, which was a a correspondence thing. You know, they mail you the books and they mail you the tests and you mail it back to them because this is in the olden days when you had to still use mail to do things and. Uh, <laughs> and uh so i started that when i was 14 and as i started to work on it i was like i can, i think i can get done early i think i'm going to graduate early and i ended up finishing the whole 4 years of high school in 14 months
0: <laughs> wow
1: and uh, so then i started college when i was 15 and um because it was kind of like i guess i could sit around for the next 3 years <laughs> or <laughs> i could go ahead and get a jump start on college so i went to college when i was 15 and a half And then I finished my bachelor's degree when I was 19 and uh, went on to graduate school from there. So that definitely had an influence on me as well. I kept it a secret. I didn't tell people. I just pretended I was... Uh, the regular, the regular age. So if they'd ask me to meet at a bar or something, I would just say like, no, I can't do that. And I didn't tell anybody how old I was until I actually, it was the week before graduation. And I told a couple of my professors like, Hey, guess what? <laughs> I'm a baby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> well I I think what's it, it what struck me about that and as well as just your journey is and I'm I'm playing the comparison game you know I, I even said in the intro mm-hmm. like I didn't even know who the the sacred feminine was and so she kind of knocked me over the head and I was yeah absolutely I, I was 38 <laughs> and so what struck me is that oh it seems like you got on this path from a very from a well mm-hmm. from my perspective from a young point and so I was wondering you know how did the How did this, and I don't know the language you would use, goddess, divine feminine, sacred feminine, but how did you get on that path? How did it find you or how did you find it?
1: Yeah, and I would really see, like I have said and and written before that I feel like the goddess like kind of danced around the edges of my consciousness for quite a few years like this was a there was multiple years of the you know the a thread of the divine feminine the sacred feminine even in that 13 year old girl who would say yes I am a feminist you know like there was a thread of the goddess that kind of like ran through my life but it was it was more and I still have a very uh you know my spirituality is very centered in like the world around me or what I see and experience in this kind of embodied lived reality of where I am And so that I have had, you know, that's under underlaid my experiences for a long time. But when I was in my early so like late teens and early 20s. Like I remember having this kind of sensation of like there's something there's got to be like something else kind of out there like I felt like okay. uh, hollowness is the wrong word, but kind of like a seeking, you know, I felt like a seeking kind of sensation. And so this would be when I was in college and I remember, oh no, grad, this would be graduate school age. So finished college. And then I, we moved to a different city, um, at that time to go to graduate school. And I would talk, we'd go, uh, go back and forth on the highway to get to visit my parents, um, over the weekends. And we would have these, my husband and I would have these long like conversations in the car about like spirituality and like, what is there? And like, what you know, I, I felt like I needed something else. Like there was something out there that I couldn't language that I couldn't put words to, but that I perceived that was beyond the, um, you know, that wasn't Judeo Christian, but that wasn't nothing. That wasn't atheism either. Like there was something else and I could sense it, but I couldn't really language it or I couldn't really name it. And uh, so at that time, so I was like 19 or something. And I I took a quiz online. (laughs) I've written about this before, but it's been a while. I took a quiz online that was called like, what's your, you know, what I, it was a belief net quiz at the time. Like what's your spiritual, what's your spiritual identity. And I got Unitarian Universalist as my result, (laughs) which is which does connect in a lot of ways. There's a there's a Unitarian Universalist thread that runs through my life too. And indeed, uh, my uh, first master's degree is in social work. And I've said before, like social work is very much the social work code of ethics is practically the same as the Unitarian Universalists' uh, statement of what they of their um, their ten like principles. Mm-hmm. It's like it practically can be lifted from the social work code of ethics. So it makes sense that I found a I found a connection there. But even that, if that wasn't like personal enough or like embodied enough or like magical enough, really, to be honest, like Unitarian Universalism, I also joke about and much love, you know, I still get the Unitarian Universalist magazine. I'm not complaining about Unitarian Universalism, but sometimes I joke it's called, it should be called the Church of... democracy and and evolution (laughs) because there's a tendency to be very academic kind of in the approach to life in general. And so for me, that wasn't quite like, I need some more, like, I need some more magic. There needs to be like some more flavor and like and like, um, you know, enchantment, we can't be totally like devoid of magic. And uh, so like I said, God is kind of whispering around, like kind of dancing through the edges of consciousness. And then my friend, my good friend took a women's studies class in her college degree. And um, they read when God was a woman, and they read the chalice and the blade during her class. And she said, I think you'd really like these books. And she lent them to me. And I read them both. And I was like, <laughs> that's what I've been looking for because maybe the concept that I don't resonate with which is a patriarchal god kind of concept uh maybe that's not the only choice <laughs> maybe the choices aren't patriarchal god or atheism maybe there's a whole range in in the middle of all kinds of other things and so that was really my exposure to uh, the divine feminine sacred feminine the goddess as like a legitimate Um, you know, not something I was just kind of sensing, dancing at the edges of consciousness, but something that was really a valid pathway with 35,000 years of history behind it too. (laughs) And uh, so that was when I was in like my early twenties and I spent that period of time very much Considering the goddess from a academic perspective and like a sociopolitical perspective, so this is like a sociopolitical statement about like the value of women, the 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 value of like sacred feminine imagery, the kind of subverting the dominant paradigm. Like so, my interest was sociopolitical, and my interest was symbolic. Like this is a this is a different. This is a symbol of uh, you know, a world we could live in, a world we could see, a world I would like to be a part of and not um, you know, kind of like subversive, so to speak, but maybe not um, internalized or personal, but kind of like an external, um, yeah, like external academic, sociopolitical type of perspective. And so then it took a, several more, quite a few more years after that for me to like ground bring all those threads together into that, into like a lived experience of goddess spirituality as like a living, evolving, breathing, you know, immediately available present experience.
0: Mm -hmm. I was just laughing a little bit too. I was thinking about what you said, those, the the two books that you named the chalice and the blade when God was Mm -hmm. a woman, I'm certain probably both of them have come up on the show before, but I'll put them in the show notes for listeners that are curious about them because they're both excellent but um mm-hmm. i was i was giggling uh, to myself and it's not really a happy giggle but just you know the, the the side note that you said which is you know this is something backed up by 35,000 years of history and yet um and yet that's not really present in in, in until you see the book You know, you got to actually have access to the book before you realize that there are other options. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's, and so to
1: me, and that's what I've written that before too, is so then goddess became something that felt right, like in my bones, you know? And so I spent this period of time almost feeling like I needed to like prove her or like, you know, Mm -hmm. academically rationalize that there's 35,000 years of history and there's this evidence and there's this evidence and there's this evidence. And then it wasn't actually until, um, I don't remember if I wrote about that in Walking with Persephone or not, but I experienced uh, multiple pregnancy losses in between my two sets of kids. And it wasn't until those those experiences of grief and loss that I felt the goddess like land within me in, an, in a sense of her as a real presence in the world, as opposed to like a symbol or a sociopolitical statement about what I value, and it was those experiences of like you know walking through the underworld of grief, so to speak, that she, um, it was like the that time of personal suffering that I came to see her as as like real as opposed to an idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I borrow from a um, Karen Tate's description of the, she calls the goddess. Um, she says, uh, "What is she uh, symbol, statement, an ideal symbol?" Now I'm I'm losing it slightly. Symbol, statement, and ideal, I think is what she says is how some people experience the goddess. And so for me, that those all have value, the symbol, the statement, and the ideal. But then also there's that like kind of living reality. And I no longer, I do think I wrote that in Walking with Persephone. Is like, I no longer feel like I have to like prove her anymore. Like I walk around inside, <laughs> inside this like living magic every day. Like it doesn't need to, it's not something I need to make a case for any longer.
0: I know exactly what you mean. And I wonder if I am now so curious about other people's journeys with this wisdom too, if that's a, it's a process that we have to go through, even just because our Western patriarchal, very rational, logical world wants to show me the facts, show me the proof, like, you know, absolutely. And so when we, when we find this, it's almost like we want to, we want to be able to say, you know, and. And I still like to give that information to to women and to men. I really like to hand them the the, the historical information, just yeah. because you know, because so many people still operate in that world. And she can play yes. in that world. She can. She's you know, like you said, thirty five thousand years of history, and yet I, I feel what you're saying, and I, I feel like I know her at this point because I can f- feel her. Like in yes. Her body. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So then there's no need to, there's not any need to like make a case for her anymore to justify her, um, like role in the world. And I did, so I spent, I, uh, I went to in 2011, I guess I started a, I started, um, a degree at ocean seminary college, which now has a different name, but at the time it was ocean seminary college. And I did a, a, a ministry, uh, uh, Master's of Divinity there, and then also a Doctorate of Ministry there, and I spent so I spent approximately—I uh, don't know why I'm blanking out on when I finished, but you know, so let's say, yeah, I'm blanking out on when I graduated, but whatever <laughs> it was. Uh, so let's say I spent four years immersed in this academic study and writing all the papers I took matriarchal myth you know part 1 and 2 I took like all the theoretical and the the um religious and the clear uh clergy oriented types of classes about maker, matriarchal histories and goddess studies and theology with an A from you know from um like an academic perspective and so I wrote papers and I did all these kinds of things and that period of my life was really kind of spent you know, um, yeah, you know, like making my case, <laughs> like kind of mm-hmm. making my case for the goddess. and um, and then after I finished those degrees, I was able to kind of lay aside the need for like the academic rationalization or making an ontological you know case for the goddess. I was able to kind of lay that aside. That's not to say there's not value there. And I'm glad I wrote those papers and I had those experiences, but it's it's also nice to just kind of rest rest in the knowing versus try to do any proving.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that rest in the knowing. Indeed. Well, I'd love to hear from you on your latest book, which I, I, it really, it really resonated with me. I, 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 I've been reading it, you know, right now, basically very recently. And, um, so the timing for me of moving into fall has really, there, there's a call in it to, you know, that just feels like this, 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 oh, this, this weariness in our bones and the call to address that. But you know what, actually, I'm going to stop right there. Cause I want you to talk about your book and, maybe a good place to start walking with Persephone is it's, you know, I I don't even know, you know, I never know you listeners, uh, what you know, when you show up here. So maybe you could tell us Molly, just a little bit about, you know, who is Persephone and, you know, who she is to you and, and, you know, how this all came to be.
1: Yes. And uh, so as I noted, my, uh, you know, my previous experience with the goddess has been kind of more of a, as a broad, uh, one of the things I say about her is, you know, she who she who holds the whole, she who weaves the all, kind of like this broad, all-encompassing goddess. And uh, in the process of writing, so when I started out writing *Walking with Persephone*, it, I didn't even know Persephone was going to show up. It wasn't the book wasn't called *Walking with Persephone*. I didn't even know I was going to write a book. <laughs> it was a. I had described it as I was going to do an experiment. I was going to do an experiment with rebuilding my soul because rebuild, I called it rebuilding my soul without running away because I feel like sometimes, especially at this midlife kind of point, you hit the point where you start to, you know, fantasize almost about like, you know, what if I could just chuck it all and have a whole different life, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like a fantasy kind of notion of, then I'd have this whole different world and you know, everything would be perfect and wonderful. And uh, if only I had had this different kind of life and I thought I'm going to, I'm going to actively, like, I'm going to actively explore this self emerging process of rebuilding my soul where I am. With who I'm with and like what I've got, the tools that I have right now, as opposed to running away, chucking it all or giving up, you know, and becoming resigned to, you know, feeling like a faded copy of myself almost. And uh, so that's where it started was like, how am I going to rebuild my soul? How am I going to rebuild my soul without, you know, quitting my business and moving to a different state and like giving up on everything that I love? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, how am I going to rebuild the soul around the edges of these other things? And it was in that. And so the book, the Walking with Persephone book kind of explores the uh, you know tasks that I walked through or worked with that the um, is it 12 tasks now I'm losing it, 12 tasks, 13 tasks that I kind of encountered on this process of rebuilding the soul in the context of a real, normal, regular, multifaceted life with kids and the husbands and jobs and that kind of stuff. And, uh, so Persephone herself was a surprise to me, you know, like I wasn't that you did not think here I go, I'm going to write this book and Persephone is going to be a big part of it. It was a, she was a surprise to me. and Uh, But part of the process, part of this Rebuilding the Soul journey was the commitment that I made to listen to and learn from the story of my life as it was being written, like right now, like instead of going backwards and trying to pull together the threads of my past, or instead of projecting forwards and trying to think about like, oh, this will really, you know, reach somebody or I'll better have this experience so I can make sure to teach somebody this amazing lesson. The, the heart of it was, I'm going to, going to listen to and learn from like the story of my life as it is being written in this moment. I'm not going to go to backwards. I'm not going to rewind and I'm not going to fast forward and, um, you know, try to tie it up with a neat little bow. (laughs) And it it was so, it was in that, um, it was in that, like, listening, learning from the story that the story was then written. Does that make sense?
0: (laughs) It does. And it's, uh, it's interesting to go on that journey with you, you know, to be Mm -hmm. a a witness to it because it's one of the many things that I loved about your book is it, um, it just reminded me of these, these moments of, of everyday wisdom and insights that, Mm. that come to us just throughout our day. When we take a little break, we breathe into it. Maybe we write it down or maybe we walk outside and that it's kind of. it's how you describe it's in the moment. And those, those with Mm -hmm. those little pieces are coming to us uh, frequently. Well, yes. And the power in writing it in book form was I started
1: to be able to see how all the pieces connected. So rather, so we talked very briefly before we started recording about the fact that I usually write poems and I've, and I wrote blog posts for years, things that are written kind of for immediate consumption or immediate delivery. So I spent years writing poems for a long time. I didn't call myself a poet because I was like, Hey, I'm not a poet. I just open my mouth and words come out and sometimes they sound like poems. And, um, but, th- and also sometimes I just find them. I feel like I find the poems like sitting on the ground and I pick them up <laughs> or I see them like drifting through the air and I'm like, oh, there's a poem. I'm going to get it. And, and uh, or I hear a poem and I'm like, oh, I hear a poem, you know, I'm going to write it down. And it doesn't feel like that doesn't feel like being a poet, that feels like I'm bearing witness to the poems that are just springing up in the world. And I just happen to see the poem as it springs up in the world. And then I collect it and write it down. And uh, which that feels different than being a poet to me. But when you write a poem, it's a very much an encapsulation of a certain experience or a certain message. And it's, it's kind of wrapped up in your certain amount of lines. And then it's ready to gift or to learn from or to publish or whatever. It's kind of its own encapsulated experience. And, um, And when you're used to writing that way, sometimes, you know, there's a thread that connects those pieces of work too, but each one is kind of standalone. And so in writing a book that weaves together these different stories and these different experiences, it was really powerful to me to see the patterns and the pieces connect and how, as each day, you know, I would wake up each morning, like excited to see what I was going, what, what, you know, what part of the story is going to happen today, you know, but instead of writing about somebody else, I'm writing about myself and I'm going to see like, what happens, you know, like what's going to happen today that I can write about. It was a sense of like excitement and anticipation, like what's going to happen today. And then seeing how it all works together was one of the most powerful gifts of writing the book is like, wow, like this thread connects to this thread and this thread connects to this thread. And, um, it was really, uh, it was really kind of an enchanting way of, I guess, conceptualizing or experiencing the larger patterns of of our lives, And each of us has that larger pattern of our lives. And sometimes when we're immersed in the day-to-day, like task fulfillment, we can lose sight of that larger pattern
0: mm-hmm.
1: or that larger story that kind of underlies the, the whole.
0: That's what I was just thinking is that, you know, and I didn't, until you started talking about it just now, I didn't make this connection, but I'm thinking of a while back, I read a book by uh, Jean Houston. Uh, I'm going to mess up the name of it, but it's the myth of your life or living a mythic life or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so that idea of finding, um, the story of your life, living out the mythology of your life, mm-hmm. it's almost like, like, oh, you know, which is a beautiful idea, but it, it still kind of felt abstract to me. And now I'm thinking, oh, I should just pretend like I'm writing a book about my life every day. <laughs> Maybe yeah. The way. And see what
1: you learn. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, what's going to happen. This is the book of my life. What's going to happen today in the book of my life. and there was a lot more, you know, more than half of what I wrote was cut in the final publication process. And so, um, because not everything that you write actually matters (laughs) or everything that you write, I mean, your life matters, but not everything that you write down, you know, needs to be in a final book. And so more than half of it ended up getting, getting cut away, but I trusted that, you know, I trusted that that story was there and that each day I would find out the next piece of the story. And I, one of the things I described to other people and I've I've made some audios or spoken of this in the past before is that there's value to the mythopoetic storying of our lives like we live in a storied reality like that's how we navigate the world is a storied reality and there's a value in seeing your own life through like a mythopoetic lens and i had shared um you know somebody had asked me when i was writing this book like kind of essentially what makes you think you have anything to say that other people want to read not quite worded in that rude rude sounding way that i just said but um and i told him like that you i believe that everybody has a story worth telling and i and like your your story matters and so having like the courage to name your story as having value or as having relevance or as having purpose and then like kind of standing up for that like I think that is a radical act to like see the story of your life and to see the story of your life as as powerful and meaningful like it does it's it's there and uh so anyway that was a uh, that was experience with that But that mythopoetic story and like seeing our lives through the lens of story can um can be a radical act it can also be empowering and it can also help you yeah like see your life in the context of larger patterns and purposes than um you know just here i go do to do in my day-to-day
0: <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah so let's let's weave persephone in here too yes. uh-huh. and i'm i'm thinking of uh you know, the, the the bare bones, if you don't know a lot of her stories, right? There's oh, yes. Big, mm-hmm. Right. But I mean, it, uh, at first glance, if you've only heard that she was, you know, abducted by Hades and taken to the underworld, you might be wondering, like, why would I want to walk with Persephone? <laughs> right.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. right. And I explore that a little bit in the book as well, too, is that I had, I had um, you know, I've been familiar familiar with the story of Demeter and Persephone for a number of years, but I had always kind of dismissed Persephone as too out of control, and her own path or her own destiny so to speak so if she's abducted or if she's you know having to go back to the springtime or go back to the earth to bring the springtime like she's not actually in control kind of of her own fate Mm -hmm. almost or her own experience and so and that's what i discovered in the process of this book is like that's exactly why she's the perfect Goddess to walk with is because she knows what it is like to wrestle with those forces of choice and control and independence and surrender and force. And like that is the, like and she knows how to navigate both the underworld twists and turns and the flowery meadows. Like this is a full spectrum goddess. And I had mistakenly misperceived her or dismissed her as quote unquote, you know, too maiden or too naive or too um you know too um uh it's like kind of simplified her when she's really a very full spectrum, full experienced goddess, you know, who knows how to both bring the spring and how to, you know, be the queen of the underworld all rolled up into one. So the original story of Demeter and Persephone, there's, mo- there's multiple versions of the tale. And as with any, like any goddess story, all we have left is the barest remnants, like the barest shards of what's been left behind through hundreds and thousands, hundreds of years, thousands of years of like other people's lenses applied on top of the story. So we just get a shard. It's like, we're literally looking at one fragment of a much larger picture. And so the, so the shards we had left of the Demeter and Persephone story were that, yes, um, you know, Persephone is the daughter of the earth goddess and she's out picking flowers in the meadow and she's abducted by the god of the underworld who takes her down into the underworld Um, and her mother is so full of grief at the loss of her daughter that she withdraws the fecund and fertility you know fertile power of the earth she withdraws that and the earth is plunged into winter and like can't come out of winter because persephone is gone and, and and demeter is grieving the loss of her daughter and uh, has, like, withdrawn the life-giving power from the earth until her daughter is returned to her, and then, um, so then Persephone's in the underworld, and she um, she eats six pomegranate seeds while she's there, and that binds her to the underworld. Once you've eaten underworld food, you can't leave, and so they strike a deal that Persephone is able to come to the surface of the earth and rebirth rebirth of the spring for six months and then she has to descend back into the underworld for the other six months and um and be the queen of the underworld so she gets to be both like the goddess of the the goddess of the earth and the goddess of the underworld and uh and then there's other interpretations of the story like that that you know Persephone sees Hades and like falls in love with the tall dark brooding you know handsome bad boy of the underworld <laughs> and needs to kind of break some of those ties the the bonds, the maternal bonds that like kind of chain her in place. She's like, Hey, I'm going to go off with this cool dude instead. And, uh, and some parts of the story too say that she actually, when she's picking flowers in the meadow, rather than being abducted, she hears the, the cries from the underworld of the souls that need help like that need guidance through these shadowy realms of the unnavigable terrain. So she hears the cries of the the lost souls while she's picking the flowers. So she descends into the underworld of her own free will to help the people navigate their journey. So that's the kind of imagery that I drew upon in this book was that sensation that if there's any goddess who knows how to navigate underworld terrain and shadowy places and liminal spaces where there are no answers and times of transition and times of loss and times of change and times of joy and times of sorrow. If there's any goddess that knows like how to do that, then it's Mm -hmm. Persephone.
0: So, yeah. Well, and you know what? came to me as you were describing this too I was thinking about and and so this is you know you, you reflect back to me if this feels you know accurate to what your intent was with the book but as i was um you know settling into it i was thinking about there was just a lot that felt very relevant to my own life and there's this one theme kind of running theme that i have worked with often is this feeling of not being in control of my own yeah. life like there's mm-hmm. just these forces that are yeah. I, never, I never have enough time there's too much mm-hmm. that's wanted from me or needed from me or mm. just like this culture just moves too fast and I can't keep up with it and just so this feeling of like a loss of of control of sorts and so I, I as you were describing Persephone I was almost thinking of that. And, and also I should say, as, as I have journeyed with that story myself, I see that it's, it's not necessarily true, you know, that I, Mm -hmm. I do have more control than I've given myself credit for. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so I was Mm -hmm. thinking about, even as we were talking about, you know, the initial impression of Persephone is this, Mm -hmm. is this, this woman who does not have control right? Like that's the yeah. surface story is that as well, isn't it? Is that she doesn't have choice. Like she's just being d- d- dragged along by the forces right. around and her. It's- yeah. Yeah
1: right and then instead it's the same as i was saying before it's like if there's anyone who knows how to balance like those forces of like choice and force or who knows how to like navigate them it's Persephone and i feel like when i in the course of writing this book that came up as a, a big theme in the book and then also ongoing after the book is over i've continued to like wrestle with those issues of choice versus force and how often do i feel like like i have no choice or like i'm forced to do this or forced to do that and in innovation very, you know, I'm speaking from a very like, you know, first world problems kind of experience, yeah, <laughs> not, yes. um, you know, I want to acknowledge that, like, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about, you know, middle class white woman issues, right. <laughs> And, uh, but that the reality of choice, like really became started to become illuminated for me in the process of writing this book is how often I do have choice and I'm, but I'm letting myself feel feel like I don't or like I'm being forced into it. But the force is coming from, you know, the culture, a cultural story or a pressure to um, you know, kind of invisible pressure or socialization or even just habit, like forced by my own habit <laughs> to in to engage with the world in a certain way. And so the the kind of coming to terms with the reality of how much active choice I actually do have in my life was one of the gifts of working with Persephone as well. That 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 active choice component. Mm-hmm. And I had that dream I described in the book of, of Persephone and her underworld queen like kind of yes. identity. And it, when I had that dream, it was that that was like being in the presence of Persephone in the, in her most like self sovereign powerful aspect and that was a really dramatic experience for me because I was like oh you're not just skipping through the meadows picking flowers like you are literally like the queen (laughs) you are literally like the queen in your own life and in and there is not this is not we're not talking about like a shrinking violet who's just waiting for you know somebody to swoop swoop her up in his chariot this is someone who is powerfully like present and sovereign and uh, so that was a that was a meaningful experience to me to have that to have that dream experience of Persephone in the underworld queen aspect, as opposed to just the maiden aspect, which I also experienced.
0: Yes. And that dream is very, it, you just describe it really well. It brings her forward very vividly. Uh, I can see her in my head. As yeah.
1: Yeah. It was really, it was a really, really strong, strong, uh, a strong, powerful dream in that, in that way. And then as, as I wrote, I, you know, I went, I went to the spot that I'd seen in my dream to, to, um, to wrap up, my book and to wrap up the experience, I, I journeyed to that metaphorical, but actually still kind of literal <laughs> underworld um, ravine to, uh, to to the space where I'd seen her descend in the dream. So that was part, I think that's a, a that goes back to that mythopoetic story of your life is that I think sometimes in um, spiritual paths or, or just um, spiritual conceptions, like sometimes we forget that um, these these elements these these stories these aspects like they're present in our waking world you know in our everyday world too and uh you know i nothing's wrong with guided meditations or visualizations or you know um you know internal work in that way but i really do encourage people to like you know literally physically like get out and walk walk into the story or walk into the world and see where those aspects are actually represented in you know physical form right in front of your eyes like what is right in front of your eyes it's not just a quote-unquote nice story or and it's not just a socio-political statement it's something that's really happening where you are
0: yeah and i don't i don't you know like people people need to go and 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 get your book and read it because it's amazing so (laughs) i know i don't want you to give everything away but i wonder if you could give an example or like how people might like how how they might do that
1: yeah, that yeah. I get this question. I've gotten this question before and I actually have made a couple of little audio resources and things about that as well, because about like kind of stepping into the story, you know, yeah. and so one of the things that I say is it's like, um, it's so it's not about like stepping out of reality. It's about stepping fully into reality. Does that make sense? Like we're step, we're not stepping out of the world. We're stepping fully into this one, like with our eyes wide open and our hands wide open and our hearts wide open, like right here. And so one of the, um, so the story that I will share in that way is that and this connects to the the seeing the pieces and how they weave together that that part of our conversation as well, is that uh, one of the stories that I share in the book is that I'm at the I went to um, this is so this is early in the walking with Persephone journey when I started to like sense her as a presence in my in my work and in my world. I had gone to teaching classes at homeschool co-op and uh, there's a there was a we met at a building that is across the street from a lake and so I have a little I have I would have a little break in between teaching my classes where I wasn't needed for anything so my kids were all in classes I didn't have anything to teach I had like this little break section and so I would walk over across the street to this lake and um, and have about an hour to like sit by myself and think and so I walked over there on the spring equinox you know which is when in uh, you know hindsight, that's when Persephone like descends or ascends back to the earth. It's on the spring equinox, so it actually was the spring equinox. I walked over to the lake and I um, saw this root on the ground that looked like a curled-up woman to me the root had this like curled up woman shape. And I was like, Oh, how perfect for the spring equinox, you know? And so I'm thinking about these stories at the time. So it's like, I know that like, this is Persephone comes back to the world at the spring equinox. And I can, and I saw the root and it looked like this, this woman and, um, and it was only, it was much, much later, like almost six months later that I realized that the root that I had looked at that was shaped like this curl of woman was a cypress tree. And cypress trees are known as the trees that like are the gates that entry to the underworld, gates <laughs> to the underworld. So that's what I mean is like, so we don't have to like imagine that we're seeing symbols or we don't have to imagine that we're encountering like a mythic gateway through the cypress trees. Like the cypress trees are really there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and the root on the spring equinox shaped like the curl of woman is like really there. And at that experience, like I walked, so I walked by this lake, which is really kind of a dirty, like weird kind of um, like it's in the middle of town and it's kind of grungy and has like, crash floating in it and stuff. But as I was walking there, like I started to hear kind of this uh, poem like from Persephone. And as I spoke before, I kind of feel like sometimes I pluck poems out of the air, you know, like I see them going by and I'm like, oh, there's one, you know, I'm going to catch it. And uh, (laughs) so I could hear these lines. And and so I saw the lake and it was kind of windy and the the water was kind of like whipping up in the water. And I heard like, I know what it means to rise soft-bellied from the deep. And so it's like, I'm having so I'm here, I'm there, I'm there by the cypress trees, and I'm looking at the water. But in the water was kind of that story of like rising soft belly from the deep, like I'm coming back, like I'm ascending back into the world from this place. And uh, so I rise soft belly from the deep with um, you know, shards of darkness still clinging to my thighs and my lips stained very red with truth and desire. And I heard it and I kept walking by the lake and I kept hearing these other pieces, but the other pieces were literally things that were happening. So I saw the willow trees were curved over and I like squatted down by the willow trees. And then these two mourning doves like flew up out, out of the, out of the trees, like while I was squatting there. And so that became part of my poem too. So it's like, it's a interplay between what you're really seeing, like You're really seeing these things and then connecting them back to, um, you know, maybe more distant times and places or broader concepts, but you're seeing it actually happen and then you're linking, kind of linking the things together. And I had the other experience that I also talk about in the book by that same lake as I was picking violets. I was not picking violets. I was taking pictures in the violets and I was singing my little song, my little Persephone song. And I was picking the violets and looking at them. And I looked over and there was a man leaning on the cypress tree, like watching me pick the violets. (laughs) And I'm like, what? Like, Hades, is that you? (laughs) (laughs) So great. Cause it's like this, this at those at that point, like the stories became one kind of like these. That's and so that's what I mean by that mythopoetic story. It's really genuinely, I feel like it's about opening your opening your eyes to see what's just right there. And you can kind of either see it or not see it. Like that's up to you, like whether whether you see it
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> or not. Oh, I love that. I love that. <laughs> it's just such a you just bring yeah, that just brings it alive so so well. Thank you for that description. Um <laughs> I, and I so I want to ask you too about, you know, walking with Persephone because one thing that I picked up on your and you referenced in the book too a couple of times is you you pondered, you know, am I done? Am I done with you? Are we oh, done? Yeah. <laughs> Can yeah. I move Are on, <laughs> Oh, yeah. And you weren't, and you weren't done. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. It wasn't done. Yeah. And I kept thinking like, oh, this will be just tidy. Like I'll just do three months. And and it, the original concept for the book. So I was doing this experiment and um, with rebuilding my soul. And I was like, oh, I'll divide it into four sections. One for the, each, You know, each element. So I'll have an earth section, a water section, an air section, and a fire section. And I'll work with a different goddess for each one. And I'll have an air goddess, a fire goddess, an earth goddess, and a water goddess. Won't that be great? And I'll write like this book that's about like goddess centered spiritual paths and like, you know, developing devotional practices. That's what I thought I was going to do. And so I'm like, oh, okay, Persephone's first. And then I was getting these strong like air messages at the same time, even though that seems ironic too. Like, how can Persephone be an air goddess when she's an underworld goddess? Like, that's the farthest away from the air that you can get. Um, but so that's that trusting that lived experience versus like thinking you have to do it the right way, so to speak. And, uh, anyway, it didn't end up being that tidy. It wasn't tidy. And if there's anything that I learned in the process of writing the book, it's like life, life isn't tidy. Like it's very, it's, it's not tidy. And it also doesn't get done. Like the story. So if we're speaking of stories and the stories of your life, like the story of your life, doesn't get tied up in a year or uh, three months or uh, you, you don't pass the test and then you've arrived and everything's now perfect and you never have to face another challenge. <laughs> there continues to be unfolding experiences. That's part of, that's part of, you know, living a full human life. And um, so I uh, so yeah, I kept wanting it to be wrapped up. I kept wanting it to be like, oh, here's my three months. Now it's gonna be time to switch to a different goddess, and I'm gonna switch to a different element. And I and I found that I you can't um, you can't necessarily direct the story the way you want it to be. Yeah.
0: <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and also <laughs> thinking about some of the themes that came up, you know, in the and even what we're talking about, the sense of um, loss of control, or feeling like we're not in control, or or there's this, there's um, but at least for me, and I think I sense this in your book too. This this it, there's a sense I think sometimes of like life is just swirling around us, like fast, fast, yeah. fast, and mm-hmm. so how how perfect then that Persephone would also be like, no, 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 we're, we're slowing no, down here. Yeah, we're, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're not going to rush <laughs> <Yeah>. through this.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're not going to be able, you're not actually going to be able to tie this up with your with a nice little lesson or a 10-step process for success. You know, like that's not what this is about at all. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I have worried about that a little bit with the book too. It's like, you know, I, I hope, you know, people aren't going to read it thinking they're going to get the answer, you know, because that's not... <laughs> there's not an answer, really, there's not an answer. And part of, um, you know, part of the experience of being human is kind of living, living the questions and and walking with the questions of your life. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. And I I feel like you've kind of this whole description that you gave of the mythopoetic life and experiencing in that way, you've sort of already touched on this, but Uh, I know this theme of finding magic in the ordinary moments that Mm -hmm. every day of life was very present in the book too. And I I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to that.
1: Yeah. And that's something I I do get asked about also. And I don't, the best way that I can think of to, because, the question that I get kind of is like, how do you do that? Like, well, how do you see like those Mm -hmm. magical moments or how do you find those moments of enchantment? And I've even gotten kind of critical remarks too before like, oh, well, I just can't, you know, look at the gravel and suddenly be full of illumination, you know, like, so kind of like, almost implying that I'm silly or that I'm waltzing around through the world, like constantly enchanted by all the, you know, constantly enchanted while butterflies swirl around my head and like, you know, (laughs) crystals drop, crystals drop from my fingertips or something. I'm sorry. I'm (laughs) seeing, I'm
0: seeing you as a Disney princess right now. (laughs) Yes. Right.
1: Yes. I'm seeing that too. I'm like swirling and then, oh, here's the sparkles and they're flying around me and then feathers are falling into my hands and um, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I've gotten that impression before, you know, sometimes either that Perhaps people might feel kind of, you know, chastened by me, like, oh, because I don't see magic everywhere, that that means I'm, you know, somehow, you know, missing something or that, you know, my life is like endlessly enchanted. and I'm always experiencing all these magical things. So I really feel like it's a process almost of like training your eyes to see. (laughs) And for me that, so I almost experience it as like the sensation of like, um, like a muscle unclenching or like a knot untying, And so with enough practice with enough, like if you start and I say, if you, you know, like if you expect to be enchanted every day, like you will be. And if you expect to see magic everywhere in some way every day, you will see it. And, but that doesn't, it's not like you can just say, um, let's say you don't feel magical at all. Like you're, you have zero magic. <laughs> uh, you don't just suddenly say to yourself, now I'm going to see magic everywhere. And the next day, everything is magical. Like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. It's not that simple. It's kind of a process of like training your eyes to see what's there and to see the see the magic that's unfolding around you. And nobody can feel magical all day, every day. And there's all kinds of things that happen in the world that are not magical, don't feel good and are not enchanted and are not, you know, um, good for people, but with time and practice and like relaxing your vision while at the same time focusing your vision, I would venture to promise that you can see magic somewhere in some way every day, whether it's a scrap, you know, it might just be a scrap of magic, but I really think magic is present in some way in all of our lives in every day and it's about like kind of training your eyes to open to it or training your eyes to see it and for me that training of the eyes to see it is in dedicated like daily practice and in devotion so showing up you know every day for the world as it unfolds will allow you to see something magical because you're there with witnessing and um written before that you know the most that the magical secrets you know if anybody wants any magical secrets the magical secrets that I know are to look, listen, and feel. That's the magic that I know.
0: Mm. And
1: when we consciously, intentionally, mindfully look, listen, and feel every day of our lives, then um, they they, will, they will, there will be an element of enchantment there where there will be some kind of magic there if we look, listen, and feel. And mm. that, um, so it's, like I said, that kind of, it almost feels like like, yeah, like unclenching a muscle or like untying a knot to step out and look and be like, oh, there's that magic, you know, like, there's the magic. And sometimes that means a broad definition of, you know, what magic is, but you know, the sun sun rises every day, the sun sets every day, and those are pretty magical things. And so, and there's clouds in the sky and there's air to breathe and there is earth beneath your feet. And each thing, each of those things, the sunrise, the sunset, the air and the earth, each one of those can hold a piece of magic for you if you uh, make a practice of looking for it.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that I love that so much and how you also talk about you know training your eye to see it 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 Mm -hmm. reminds me it's a good reminder to me I think and so probably to others too to just also if we're going to be, you know, very few, it's fun. This is funny. I have a conversation with my, my kids about this all the time. Like we're, none of us are just born great at everything. And especially, mm-hmm. you know, like we've got to, we mm-hmm. have to, we have to practice things. We have to work at things, you know, yes. you aren't, you aren't born speaking and <laughs> walking. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it would, it would stand to reason that, you know, if we want to, practice having a relationship with magic or intuition or, or any kind of subtle relationship that you, you got you, you, you to show practice up, it. You have to yeah. practice it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I was just, it was really just this week. I was talking to my youngest son who is um, almost seven now. And we were sitting on the deck and I said, you know, I, and I was kind of talking, we were singing a little song. And then I said, I just don't feel very magical today. Maybe I'll find a feather. And he said, but would that be magic? And I said, yes, that would be magic to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the uh, so perhaps I should also emphasize that like if you're if you are content with small magic and ordinary enchantment, then you will find it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. If um, and so there's you can either like you can find the feather and you can think, heh, a feather, <laughs> or you can find the feather and be like, bang magic is everywhere. And it's kind of a, um, like kind of both, both options are available to you. Like they're, it's there, whether you see it or not. And, uh, so I've written before, like the, the world, you know, creates like ceremonies for us, or the world is creating like rituals and enchantment all the time and it's up to us to step into the ceremony like it's already unfolding like it's up to us to step into the enchantment that's already there it's up to us to step into the magic that's already there and we can either bear witness to it and take part in it or not like that's kind of up to us but it's there it's there whether we whether we open our eyes or not.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and another thing I wanted to, because you've already sort of talked about it, the magic and the feather and the sunrise and the sunset, Mm -hmm. you write so beautifully about this in your book too, just about your relationship with nature. And Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if there's any, you know, specific nature-based practices that you have that you feel like that really sustain you that you might feel like sharing with others.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I, so um, quite a while ago, I did um, what I called my Woods Priestess Experiment. (laughs) And this was when I don't remember, uh, 2010, I'm not sure. Uh, So at some point, I did what I called a, a Woods Priestess Experiment, which was that I decided I was going to go to the same place in the woods every single day, rain or shine, ice or snow you know, darkness or light. And I was going to see what I could learn from that same space in the woods every single day. And so I did that. I went to the same space in the woods. And I, I want to say this was before I had my daughter who was born in 2011. So I could look it up and I'm sorry that I don't know the date offhand. During that year, I did in fact go to the woods every single day that year, a few weeks were missed because I was traveling or I wasn't actually home to do it, but I had a rock from the woods that I would take with me. So if I like, that was a, The same year I was in um, California, I believe, and I'd taken a rock from the woods with me to California. And so on the days that I was in California and I couldn't actually go to the woods, I would hold the rock and I would cast my awareness back to the space in the woods that I went to every day. So I would kind of mentally project myself there. So I still had my visit. (laughs) I still had my time with the woods every day. And so I kept that practice up, you know, ended up being 335 days in the same when I calculated it up, I'd sp- I spent 335 days sitting on a rock in the woods in the same place. Wow. And that, what you learn from that is it's possible to make friends with a rock. <laughs> and it's possible to be surprised, delighted, enchanted, and, um, And to learn something every single day from the same tiny spot, from the same patch of ground, from the same rock, from the same horizon line, from the same trees, there's always something new. And so that Woods Priestess experiment for me solidified the fact that it doesn't have to be like grand, like these moments, your moments moments don't have to be like grand to be illuminating, that it's actually possible to learn something every single day from the same rock. <laughs> and I, so I went and sat on the rock every single day and, um, and I would go out there in the ice. I would go out there in the, in the, if it got too late, I would, I went I went out there at 11 o'clock at night with a flashlight because I'd missed going out in the morning and I stepped on an armadillo. Gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, but hey, I was like magic right there. Like who knew there was going to be an armadillo popping up under my feet. How many people have stepped on an armadillo in their lives? I don't know. But if I hadn't been committed to going to the woods every single day, like I never would have stepped on that an armadillo. Oh, wow. It was, it was amazing. And uh, so that would be my main, uh, my main suggestion is to actively cultivate a relationship with the land that you live on. And I do recognize, and I I want to make sure to verbally acknowledge this, is there's a large amount of privilege to, to that, like to having access to land that you can learn from, like that's a privileged position. Like not everybody has a beautiful landscape and they go sit on the rock and gaze at the trees and feel all amazed and encapsulated in the wonder of the world. Like that's not everybody's reality. And so I do right. wanna acknowledge there's like a, there's a privileged element there. Um, well, at the same time suggesting that there's little pockets you know that it doesn't have the land that you engage with, the magic of place that you step into, it doesn't have to be like, it doesn't have to be attached to ownership. Like it doesn't have to be your actual, you know, you don't have to hold the deed to the land. If there's a park that's nearby you, if there's, if you can have about, ba- if you live in an apartment and you have a balcony and you can see, you know, you can see from the balcony, you can see the sunrise or the sunset, or you can see a tree, or you can see a patch of ground, or you can see the flowers or whatever, a balcony can work. A public park can work. A national park can work. A state park can work. Like anywhere where you can actively cultivate a relationship with us with a place, a place that you can actively cultivate a relationship with, that you'll you can do that. (laughs) And um so for me, it's keeping keeping a date with like the same place is part of what hones that awareness or hones that sense of everyday magic is showing up every day in the same place, like an actively like engaged in relationship with place with where you are. And so, you know, touching, touching the ground, feeling the air, seeing the sky, you know, I've said that before we all have sky and we all have skin, you know? So like, that's what we can begin with is our own, our own skin and the sky above us. Cause that's something we all have.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I love that. This And this feels like a really nice place to kind of wrap things up because after this people can go outside. <laughs> Yes, that's go, right. Go be outside wherever you can. Yeah, you know, even a window. I
1: will I will yeah. see like even, a, you know, even a window can work. Even looking out the same window and just seeing what's out there, that can work too. And I know people have different mobility things, you know, that, that challenges and things like that. Um, but there's, you know, there's usually something, even the little squirrel, you know, the little squirrel that like runs by on the balcony rail can be a, can be a touchstone with the sacred. And like I said before, you know, it doesn't have to be, um, you know. Like sure, it's all well and good. Like, and I I wrote that in the book, I believe too, that if you see, you know, if you believe that magic is every, or if you if you believe that you'll see magic everywhere, then you'll be, you'll see magic everywhere. And so part of me is like, well, is that kind of cheating? You know, like if I decide like, wow, magical squirrels, wow, magical clouds, wow, magical sunrise, (laughs) like everything's magical. And then it's like, is that cheating somehow? You know, like, shouldn't I be journeying to the etheric realms and like, you know, engaging in my astral temple where I see all the, you know, what are the sparkling lights and all this kind of stuff. Um, But it, it, um, but guess what? It's like, that's fine. Like if you, That's, it's the truth. If you decide you're going to see magic everywhere, then that's what you'll see. And so yes, that squirrel running on the balcony isn't just a squirrel running on a balcony. It's a a magical moment of relationship and connection that you have that you can
0: form with your place with where you are mm mm-hmm. I even like the I, suggestion that you had about, you know, are you talking about going to California and holding onto this rock mm-hmm. and stuff too? I mean, mm-hmm. even, even like a stone, right? That we find. Yes, even the-
1: a stone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people, people too, like I, I also suggest as far as daily practice and devotional practice goes, you're like building an altar space. So if you do live in a, in a place that isn't conducive to developing a relationship with like nature, uh, you know, every day, which I do like, even if I'm thinking about it, I'm like, you like I said, like we all have skin, we all have skin. So it's like, even if you can open the door and step outside, even if you live on a busy street and there's no trees anywhere, you can still open the door and feel the air (laughs) and see what the weather's doing. Like that's still there. Even if there's no trees anywhere to be seen and there's nothing else around you, there's still the air and there's still the solid ground beneath your feet and there's still the weather that's happening and you can still see that. So even opening the door can be something, but building an altar space too and, you know, tending to that altar space in your own home and reliably and regularly like showing up for that space, that can allow magic to unfold as well, especially if you have things that are representative to you of the sacred elements in your life, you know, you can tend to and visit that altar space with devotion and intention too. And that can be like your touchstone with magic as well. So but I'm a big fan of opening the door. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Open the door. Mm-hmm. So much good advice. Oh, Molly, thank you so much. What a what a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Such a joy to talk to you. <laughs> yes, it's been really nice. Thank you very much. Yeah, and so Molly's, Molly's latest book is Walking with Persephone, A Midlife Journey of Descent and Renewal. And Molly, if they want to learn more about you or Bridget's Grove or where, where should I send people? I'll certainly put a link to your book in the in the show notes, but, um, um, yeah, I, I, uh, my,
1: you know, my regular website is bridgesgrove.com. Um, but I do have an ongoing, uh, daily devotional practice experience offering, et cetera, that's called 30 days of goddess. And that is available at, um, um, Uh, bit.ly slash 30 days of goddess. Like that's where that, that information is. And I share a lot of uh, thoughts and practices and prayers and prompts and experiences with daily devotional practice and like creating and cultivating and nurturing and nourishing a relationship with the sacred in your life with creating kind of, you know, a goddess centered, a goddess centered world.
0: Perfect. And I'll put that in the show notes as well, as well as a link to Bridget's Grove. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah, as always listeners, thanks to you for tuning in and being here with me. And as always, if you, um, if you like the show, you know, you can subscribe to it. You can leave us a favorable review. You can tell your friends about it. You can do all those things i'm always open to your feedback send me an email liz at home to her.com. and until next time i will be with you again soon take care home to her is hosted by me liz kelly you can visit me online at home to where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the Sacred Feminine and you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at Home to Her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon.